In the first nearly 190 years of America's existence, only one American president was ever impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, it's becoming a regular occurrence. For the House to exercise its constitutional power to impeach Richard M. Nixon, President of the United States of America. What did the president know, and when did he know it? The Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. Concealing the relationship changed to redefining the relationship. That is why he should not be our president. Today, the Republican majority is not judging the president with fairness, but impeaching him with a vengeance. Bullies don't win. And I said, baby, they don't, because we're going to go in there. We're going to impeach the motherfucker. This is a solemn day in the history of our country when the president's misconduct has compelled us to continue to move forward with an impeachment inquiry. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. The idea of impeaching indicting political leaders for high crimes and misdemeanors is older than the United States. It's one of America's constitutional links to the mother country. High crimes and misdemeanors and impeachment in particular is a particularly British inheritance. Frank Bowman, professor at Georgetown Law School. In 1787, the American delegates weren't really Americans. They were rebel Englishmen, or at least rebel Britons, uh, since they weren't all from England by any means, they inherited much of their thinking about many things from Great Britain and from parliamentary history. By July 1787, delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia had been wrestling with many questions about the shape and structure of the government and were getting down to defining the parameters of the executive office. The delegates hadn't even decided on what to call the executive, but they knew they had to discuss what to do if he proved corrupt. On July 20th, 1787, Resolution Number 9 came before the committee that the executive be removable on impeachment and conviction for malpractice or neglect of duty. James Madison took notes, and the following scene is transcribed from them. As soon as the motion came to the floor, Mr. Gouverneur Morris of Pennsylvania, one of the big players at the Constitutional Convention, objected. There was no need for an impeachment provision. In case he should be re-elected, that will be sufficient proof of his innocence. Besides, who is to impeach? The impeachment will be nearly equivalent to a displacement and will render the executive dependent on those who are to impeach. Colonel George Mason of Virginia disagreed. No point is of more importance than that the right of impeachment should be continued. Shall any man be above justice? Above all, shall that man be above it who can commit the most extensive injustice? As always, Benjamin Franklin asked the wittiest question. What was the practice before this in cases where the chief magistrate rendered himself obnoxious? Why, recourse was had to assassination, in which he was not only deprived of his life, but of the opportunity of vindicating his character. It would be the best way, therefore, to provide in the Constitution for the regular punishment of the executive, where his misconduct should deserve it, and for his honorable acquittal, when he should be unjustly accused. Gouverneur Morris. I admit corruption and some few other offenses to be such as ought to be impeachable. 
but the cases ought to be enumerated and defined. Then, James Madison himself joined in the discussion. The limitation of the period of his service is not a sufficient security. He might lose his capacity after his appointment. He might pervert his administration into a scheme of peculation or oppression. He might betray his trust to foreign powers. The debate wore on until a dramatic moment. Gouverneur Morris changed his mind. I am now sensible of the necessity of impeachments. Our executive may be bribed by a greater interest to betray his trust. And no one would say that we ought to expose ourselves to the danger of seeing the first magistrate in foreign pay without being able to guard against it by displacing him. The executive ought therefore to be impeachable for treachery. This magistrate is not the king, but the prime minister. The people are the king. A vote was taken, and impeachment would be included in describing the rules of the executive branch of government, but defining what would be impeachable was put off to later. And by early September, they narrowed it down to treason and bribery only. Professor Frank Bowman, sitting in his office, showed me James Madison's notes of the discussion that followed. George Mason is not happy with the narrowness of treason and bribery, and he stands up, and a debate ensues. Why don't you just read that out? Because it, it is, I mean, it's 18th century, but I think the language is as pretty direct and straightforward as you'd expect in a debate in Parliament or on Capitol Hill today. Right. This is directly from Madison's notes, and it is introduced, and this is the way it's introduced in the notes. It says, the clause referring to the Senate, the trial of impeachments against the president for treason and bribery was taken up. And Colonel Mason speaks. Why is the provision restrained to treason and bribery only? Treason, as defined in the Constitution, will not reach many great and dangerous offenses. So Mason suggested adding, after the words treason and bribery, or maladministration. By September of 1787, the framers have already defined treason for American constitutional purposes very narrowly. And they made that decision precisely because they were aware of the expansive and often retrospective use of treasons in British Parliament. They wanted to make sure that there wasn't any provision in the American Constitution or American practice for sort of the vindictive and bloody use of treasons uh, against American officials. Mason made his case for a wider category of offenses by referring to an ongoing impeachment in Britain, that of Warren Hastings, the governor of Bengal, whose trial had been in May of 1787. And that isn't the only way in which events in Britain directly shaped the discussion. Now, it turns out that in British practice, uh, at least serious maladministration had been understood to be an impeachable offense for a really long time. But Madison wanted to make sure, I think, that in American practice, the Congress couldn't get rid of the president simply because they didn't think he was quite up to standard as a president. He wanted language, if language there had to be defining impeachable offenses, he wanted language that was a little more stringent, that emphasized severity, uh, maybe had even a, some sort of tincture of wrongdoing in it. And in response to that, of course, George Mason says, well, okay, you don't like maladministration. How about high crimes and misdemeanors? And I like to sort of imagine the framers, you know, 
wigged and stockinged, all looking around the room and saying, well, fellas, what do you think? Great. High crimes and misdemeanors it is. I rather suspect the debate was maybe a little longer than that. Actually, the full phrase that Mason suggested was high crimes and misdemeanors against the state. But that latter phrase against the state was cut out by, I think, the Committee of Style. Yes, the Constitutional Convention had a Committee of Style to assure, in Bowman's words, concision and precision in America's founding document. Mason's turn of phrase was not plucked out of thin air. High crimes and misdemeanors is another inheritance uh, from Great Britain. It was created by Parliament for the first time in 1376. But the main function that impeachment served over the four centuries in which it was actively used by Parliament was really as a counterweight by the legislature to uh, overreaching by the Crown. And so the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors is almost as old as the procedure of impeachment itself. It is intentionally vague, as it should be, for a legal process that is essentially a tool of politics. It was first used in 1386, 10 years after impeachment was invented in the first instance. And it was used to describe the bad things that the particular impeached official had done. And episodically, for the next 400 years or so, Parliament, in its articulation of the charges, would call whatever the person had done high crimes and misdemeanors. And they didn't always use that term. Sometimes they just charged people with treason or uh, used other terms. But over time, that became the, the term or the, the, the term of art of choice that Parliament used. And the important thing about that from the point of view of later American interpretation is that, of course, Great Britain doesn't have a written constitution, and it never so, so there's no written constitution in which the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors is found. Nor did Parliament ever getting around, get around to writing a statute of impeachments and that tried to define the scope of things that were impeachable. Rather, Parliament proceeded in a characteristically British common law fashion and simply decided things case by case. But over the years, the phrase that Parliament used to describe the things for which they had impeached people was high crimes and misdemeanors. And by 1787, uh, everyone in the sort of the Anglo-American world understood that to be the case. They understood that high crimes and misdemeanors was the thing you called, the phrase you used um, to describe impeachable stuff. The final Committee of Style approved wording of the Constitution is terse. Article 2, Section 4. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. English historian T.F.T. Plucknett called impeachment the most powerful weapon in the political armory, short of civil war, and it would take the national catastrophe of civil war before presidential impeachment came into use. Straight was the track to the top of the hill The rebels they shot and shelled Plowed furrows of death through the toiling ranks And guarding them as they fell There soon came a horrible dying yell From heights they could not gain The country was still broken Brenda Wineapple, author of The Impeachers, 
the Civil War had just been fought. It was over in 1865. Um, if that weren't enough, the president the, at the time, Abraham Lincoln, had just been assassinated. So you have the first ever presidential assassination following on a brutal civil war where at least 750,000 people had been killed, and, and the number keeps being revised upward. There was no sense of how the country was going to be knit back together again, even though the war was over. And at that particular time, you had a president, um, Andrew Johnson, who had been a Democrat on the Republican ticket to balance the ticket. And he was really charged, as Congress was, with reconstructing the nation. What happened at that particular juncture is a really burning question, two burning questions. One is, what are you going to do with this 11 formerly seceded states that formed the Confederacy? How are you going to admit them back into the Union? And two, and related question, four million formerly enslaved people are freed, and pretty soon, in December 65, the, the 13th Amendment ratifying the abolition of slavery is passed. So what are you going to do with these people? They have been deprived of all rights, civil rights. They've been deprived even of the ability to read and write. Cometh the hour, cometh the wrong man. Andrew Johnson was the only United States senator from the South who stood up against secession, which made him very courageous and beloved in the North. Certainly, he fought and believed in the maintenance and the preservation of the Union. A quick note on party labels. In the 1860s, American political parties stood for the polar opposite of what they stand for today. Back then, the Republicans were the liberal progressive party. The Democrats were the pro-slavery conservatives. Because of the Southern Democrat Johnson's courage in standing against the South's decision to secede from the Union, in 1864, the Republican Abraham Lincoln chose him as his vice presidential running mate on a kind of national unity ticket. But after Lincoln was assassinated and Johnson acceded to the presidency, he reverted to a more traditional Southern way of thinking, white supremacy. What he said, or reputed to say, is this is a country for white men, and by God, um, it's going to be a government for white men. And he was adamant about that. And what that meant was, even apart from the question of voting rights, which is a contentious issue at the time, um, he didn't really want to grant civil rights. That's the right of citizenship and due process, the ability to make contracts, sit on juries, get married, or travel freely. He didn't want the formerly enslaved, and really black people entirely, to have those rights. I mean, that is astonishing, and it was astonishing then. It was bone-chilling. To the case. Congress was not in session for much of the year back then, and Johnson took it upon himself to make the decisions about how, when, and under what terms to readmit the rebellious states. Johnson was adamant, he was belligerent, he was bullying, and he was pig-headed. He didn't even listen to his own advisors. So in a sense, he brought the House down on himself, literally the House of Representatives. But as I say, it wasn't until he actually violated a specific statute that had been passed to rein him in. When he violated that, then the House overwhelmingly voted to impeach him. The impeachment was over Johnson's violation of a new statute, the Tenure of Office Act. 
The law itself stated that anybody who had been appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate could not be fired without the advice and consent in the, of the Senate. What that meant was that Johnson couldn't act alone and independently to get rid of people that he didn't like, just willy-nilly. The Tenure of Office Act was an expression of the tension that was lying like an unexploded landmine in the U.S. Constitution, the changing nature of executive power as America grew and expanded. The Civil War had seen Lincoln, out of necessity, take many emergency powers. The national emergency wasn't over, but now Congress was trying to rein in a new and newly powerful chief executive. But as this is America, race also played its part. The official Congress was trying to protect, via the Tenure of Office Act, was Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, and the man in charge of enforcing order in the defeated southern states. Stanton was in charge of the military. The military was protecting black people at the polls because at the same time as the Tenure of Office Act was passed, something called Reconstruction Acts were passed, and what they did what one of them did was enfranchise black men so that they could vote in the South and have a say in the legislatures and constitutions which were be being formed in the states. Johnson fired Stanton and the House impeached him. It had never happened to a president. The rules as laid out in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6, echoed those of the old country. The House of Representatives, or the lower house, would impeach. The Senate, or upper house, would try the case, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court would preside. How long did it take the legislators in 1868 to organize this precedent-setting trial? It didn't take long at all. The vote was taken in February of 1868. The trial starts in March, and by early May, the voting in the Senate was happening, and it was very clear that Johnson would be acquitted only by one vote, I hasten to say. There were 11 impeachment articles, most of which dealt with Johnson's violation of the law, which is to say the Tenure of Office Act. But the two articles, 10 and 11, dealt more with obstruction of Congress, denying the legitimacy of Congress, which, which Johnson had done, because he said if the South wasn't seated, then it wasn't a legitimate Congress, and dealt with abuse of power. And after Johnson's acquittal, it seemed impeachment was done for. America grew from coast to coast and then into a global empire. The president acquired almost imperial authority. The founders' idea that the House of Representatives, like the House of Commons, was first among equals, became lost in practice. Impeachment, its only tool for confronting executive overreach, remained unused for a century. But in the 1960s, as in the 1860s, America went through an age of civil strife, and on August 8, 1968, Richard Nixon was nominated by the Republican Party to do something about it. America's in trouble today, not because her people have failed, but because her leaders have failed. And what America needs are leaders to match the greatness of her people. But on the far side of division and riots, impeachment returned to the political arena. And unlike the Andrew Johnson affair, it grew out of almost farcical circumstances. Good evening. 
We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Neither the president, obviously, or anybody in the White House, or anybody in authority in any of the committees working for the re-election of the president have any responsibility for it. That was Attorney General John Mitchell speaking on June 18, 1972, the morning after the Watergate break-in, and it was the first public lie of many. In popular memory, the break-in leads immediately to impeachment proceedings. That wasn't the case, recalls former White House counselor John Dean. I'm really not in the inside by the time they get to impeachment. I have broken rank. I've testified in front of the Senate Watergate Committee, and I've become a key witness in the House impeachment proceeding. So I'm not in the White House. I'm at war with the White House. If the Andrew Johnson impeachment was a swift process, the Nixon-Watergate impeachment was a slow-motion car crash. It took more than two years from the inciting incident, the burglary of the Democratic Party headquarters in June 1972, until the House Judiciary Committee voted articles of impeachment in July 1974. What we are doing is insane, and that it's going to bring the president down. I can't sell that to anybody, including Nixon, when I lay out what was later labeled my cancer on the presidency conversation with him. There's no doubt about the seriousness of the problem we've got. We have a cancer within close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. It's compounding. It grows geometrically now because it compounds itself. Uh, that'll be clear as I explain, you know, some of the details uh, of why it is. And it basically is because, one, we're being blackmailed. Two, uh, people are going to start perjuring themselves very quickly that have not had to perjure themselves to protect other people and the like. And that is just, and there's no assurance that that won't bust. He's got answers for everything and doesn't want to address them and wants to get on to taking care of the cover-up and paying off Hunt, who's making demands at that point. After that conversation, I realize that I have put myself in a position where he'll no longer trust me. I don't want him to trust me. I want to end the cover-up. And that goes on until April 30th, when he removes Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and yours truly. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. After the tapes are discovered, which is a the byproduct of a last-minute addition to my testimony where I explained to the Senate I thought I was recorded on one or more conversations, and they would follow up by asking Alexander Butterfield if that was possible that I was recorded just in a random staff interview, really trying to discredit my testimony. Uh, and Butterfield said there's a high probability his conversation was recorded and reports the tapes. That becomes a 
pivotal point in Watergate, because after that, they have a prima facie case from my testimony that Nixon is involved, and they use my testimony before the Senate to go after the tapes. I think the first person that ever mentioned impeachment to Nixon was yours truly on April 15th when I met with him. The meeting, I also realized he was recording me uh, and so testified. But on the way out in the the vestibule hall, I told him I hope this was handled correctly because I thought it could result in impeachment. And he said, oh, no, 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 don't worry about that. We're going to handle this by the book and and properly. Well, that's the one thing he didn't do. In November 1972, five months after the Watergate burglary, Richard Nixon was re-elected in what was, at the time, the largest landslide in American history. In that same election, two young lawyers won seats in the House of Representatives, Republican William Cohen of Maine and Democrat Elizabeth Holtzman of New York. Both ended up on the House Judiciary Committee. Cohen intentionally. Upon the advice of a friend, uh, uh, he advised me that whatever committee I wanted to be on, and I would have a choice of listing four or five, be sure to put the committee I wanted to be on last. Uh, he said, because uh, they won't know you, they won't trust you, and therefore you'll have to perform for a couple of terms before you get the committee you want. So I put the Judiciary Committee last, and that's how I ended up on the Judiciary Committee, which I was told was really a career loser because it only dealt with abortion and prayer in public school. And those are two hot-button issues which would not help me on my first rerun for uh, election. I didn't want to be on the Judiciary Committee. Former Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman. My predecessor had been on it for 50 years and was the chair of it. They didn't pay any attention to me. I was a brand new member of Congress, and new members didn't have a lot of clout in those days. And I remember being quite disappointed because I said, this is my very first legislative gambit. I try not to be on the House Judiciary Committee, and I'm put on it against my will. And then I'm thrust in the middle of history. So... And I tell you this, if they had any idea there was going to be impeachment inquiry, they meaning the powers that be in the House of Representatives, I was so low on the totem pole, I never would have been put on the Judiciary Committee. Cohen and Holtzman might have passed their first terms in obscurity, except for events in a Washington, D.C. courthouse shortly after they were sworn in, in January 1973. This is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. The trial of the Watergate burglars was reaching an unexpected climax. The verbal stamp of rejection today in a Washington courtroom, where two Watergate burglary and wiretap conspiracy defendants are still on trial. Defendant James McCord wanted to build his defense around an argument that he had waged political espionage against the Democrats in order to protect President Nixon and other top Republicans from demonstrations during last year's campaigning. United States District Judge John Sirica said that that argument was not acceptable. And after sending the jury out of the courtroom, Judge Sirica told McCord and his lawyer, I happen to be a Republican, but any decent American, Republican or Democrat, deplores this kind of conduct. Sirica, nicknamed Maximum John, was a no-nonsense law and order Republican. He gets the credit for kick-starting the process that made the House Judiciary Committee the center of history, according to Elizabeth Holtzman. It was only the work 
of this very law and order Republican judge, very conservative, um, who said, you know, I, he was sitting in, in um, presiding over the burglar case, and he said, I smell a rat. He said, Justice Department isn't asking the right questions. <laughs> something fishy is going on here. And he said, somebody's got to do something about it. He couldn't. And then the Senate created a Senate Select Committee, and um, that began the process of unraveling the cover-up. The Senate convened special hearings into the matter, chaired by Georgia Democrat Sam Irvin. How would you characterize the Watergate burglary? I guess I'd have to say that it was probably the opening act of one of America's great tragedies. Sam Irvin mixed Southern country wit with gravitas and became for the vast television audience their spokesman. The evidence thus far introduced or presented before this committee tends to show that men upon whom fortune had smiled beneficently and who possessed great uh, financial power, great political power, and great uh, governmental power undertook to nullify the laws of man and the laws of God for the purpose of gaining what history will call a very temporary political advantage. Irvin's Republican counterpart, Howard Baker, also a Southerner, tended to be a bit more terse. What did the president know, and when did he know it? But even as the Senate hearings went on throughout the spring and summer of 1973, and with a special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, appointed to dig deeper into the matter, there was no call yet for impeachment. One event changed that, remembers William Cohen. The night of the Saturday Night Massacre, in which Elliot Richardson and Bill Ruckelshouse both resigned uh, because they were asked to fire Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor. When that happened, it became clear uh, that the impeachment resolution was going to be going forward. The process was this. The Judiciary Committee was tasked with deciding on articles of impeachment. If passed by the committee, the articles would be voted on by the full House of Representatives and the articles would be passed on to the Senate for trial. Now the two young congressmen were in the crosshairs of history. Cohen, as a Republican, facing a bit more pressure than Holtzman, as Nixon was of his party. It was generally asserted that this was a uh, political maneuver on the part of the Democrats to reverse uh, Richard Nixon's election and that we should have no part in it. There was an effort uh, made to hold us all together. We would go down to the White House and there would be a rally. Um, President Nixon, during the course of that rally, would say, basically, I may be your, I may be a son of a bitch, but I'm your son of a bitch. And then everybody would cheer and, uh, and then exit the room, go back to the hill. Um, I looked at it still as a measure, what are the facts? And so that was my sole uh, goal. The Judiciary Committee began its own hearings, calling many who had already testified before the Senate Watergate Committee. The first question we had to deal with was, what does the constitutional provision on impeachment mean? It says 
the, the grounds for impeachment are treason. Well, you know, that's defined in the Constitution. Bribery, that's a pretty well understood concept. Maybe not all the outlines of it, but you know what's meant by bribery. And then you have this term, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, what does that mean? So we got a memo from the House Judiciary Committee staff, impeachment staff, and then I went out and started reading ancient British history. And I mean, ancient British history, it's not really exciting to me, <laughs> particularly ancient British legal history. I knew this was going to be the legal case of my life, and so I memorized everything that was said so when the witnesses would come before us in the house, I would know if they uh, changed any aspect of the story. So it was a very um, wise process in the sense that all of us became very familiar with the facts. And I just remember myself going through this process of being read fact after fact, page after page, day after day, and all of a sudden I knew that he represented an amazing threat to our democracy, that the wrongdoing and the misdeeds and the criminal conduct and the quasi-criminal conduct, it was just endless. It was like going into quicksand. There was no bottom, and there wasn't going to be a bottom. There was just another fact, another misdeed, another uh, abuse of power, another wrongdoing. And that's when I came to the recognition that based on what I had read about the constitutional standard for impeachment, that Nixon uh, met that uh, in spades. The impeachment procedure was drawn out as Nixon refused to turn over the tape recordings he had made. He released edited transcripts of them. Not good enough. Democrat Peter Rodino, chair of the Judiciary Committee, held a vote about whether to go to court and demand the president turn them over. The only Republican on the committee to vote with the Democrats was William Cohen. All hell broke loose in the, uh, the room. Chuck Wiggins, a conservative Republican, leaned over to Cohen and whispered in his ear. Everybody thought that he was castigating me. It wasn't it at all. He leaned over and he said, Bill, you're going to come under a lot of pressure now. Just be sure to keep your cool. The full tapes were subpoenaed, and Nixon fought the summons. Impeachment was put in the Constitution because the founders were concerned that the U.S. not become a monarchy. Without any sense of irony, Nixon's lawyer, James Sinclair, went to court and said, The president wants me to argue that he is as powerful a monarch as Louis XIV, only four years at a time, and is not subject to the processes of any court in the land except the court of impeachment. The case ended up at the Supreme Court with special prosecutor Leon Jaworski arguing the president had no special right to keep the tapes private, no executive privilege secret. Pardon, sir. Is the term executive privilege an ancient one? It has been used uh, over a period of time. How ancient... Uh, uh, Mr. Justice Brennan, I'm not in position to say, but certainly it has been one that's been used over the years, but it is not one that I find any basis for in the Constitution. Are you, are you now arguing that there is no such thing as executive privilege? No, sir. Well, I didn't think so. No, sir, but I said that no basis for it in the Constitution. You I think, said. if anything, it's a common law privilege? Is that your point? Yes, sir, and that it has been judicially recognized, and appropriately so, in a number of cases as we see it. We do not think that it is an appropriate one in this case. But 
We certainly do not for a moment feel that it has any constitutional base. On July 24, 1974, the Supreme Court handed down its ruling. The president had to turn over the tapes. That was essentially game, set, and match. Three days later, the Judiciary Committee held its first vote. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. All those opposed, no. Mr. Donahue. Aye. Ms. Holtzman. Aye. Mr. Cohen. Aye. Mr. Lott. No. Mr. Rodino. Aye. I took no pleasure in it. That vote was one of the hardest tasks I ever had to cast a vote for his impeachment. And Peter Rodino, who was a very liberal Democrat, after the first vote on the articles of impeachment, went back to his office and cried. Nobody took any pleasure, whatever your views were of Richard Nixon, in seeing these revelations about a president of the United States. You wanted to respect, revere maybe too strong a word, but you did want to respect the president of the United States. Before the full House of Representatives could vote on the articles of impeachment approved by the Judiciary Committee, Richard Nixon resigned. Everyone involved assumed that impeachment would not happen again in their lifetimes. Lord Chancellor Somers, and I think it was the 17th century, maybe 16th century, but he said impeachment was like Goliath's sword, to be removed from the temple on great occasions only. But not quite 25 years later, in October 1998, there would be another one. Good evening. For only the third time in American history, a president is facing the real prospect of impeachment. It came as no great surprise when, a couple of hours ago, the American House of Representatives, dominated by Republicans, voted to begin a formal impeachment inquiry. The question, of course, is where it will end. First of all, I hope that we can now move forward with this process in a way that is fair, that is constitutional, and that is timely. And the American people have been through a lot on this, and I think that everyone deserves that. Uh, beyond that, I have nothing to say. It is not in my hands. It is in the hands of Congress and the people of this country. Ultimately, in the hands of God, there is nothing I can do. That sense of fatalism, of an impeachment foreordained, attended the entire proceeding, as it had the whole Clinton presidency. The president's inner circle were not surprised. Well, when the scandal broke in January of 1998, it seemed pretty clear that the Republicans would move towards an impeachment almost immediately. Sidney Blumenthal, special advisor to President Clinton. I met with Hillary within 72 hours, something like that, of the first story. Uh, she had had experience with impeachment, uh, basically had a sense of how it would go. Hillary Clinton had been one of the 34 lawyers on the House Judiciary Committee's staff during the Nixon impeachment, but whatever knowledge she gained there would not prove relevant in President Clinton's case. The process in the House of Representatives was not quite as solemn as it was in the 1974 Nixon impeachment. As one of the members of the House, uh, James Rogan, a Republican from California who became a House manager, told me afterwards, they went wild. 
as he said. Uh, he said there was no adult supervision after the midterm elections of um, 1998. They went wilding. The Lewinsky scandal broke in January of 1998 and was kept alive in part because of Bill Clinton's public lies. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. The Republicans sensed that this was an issue that might lead to impeachment. In October 1998, a month before the midterm elections, the Republicans, the majority in the House, voted to begin impeachment hearings. If they thought it would be a vote winner, they were wrong. They lost seats. This did not stop their voting articles of impeachment a month later, despite a furious intervention from California Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi. Today, the Republican majority is not judging the president with fairness, but impeaching him with a vengeance. The stage was set for something that hadn't happened since Andrew Johnson, a trial in the Senate. Chuck Hagel, Republican senator from Nebraska, was among those who would have to decide Clinton's fate. It was not the first time he had been close to an impeachment hearing. I came to Washington in 1971 after I'd finished college after getting out of Vietnam and wound up working for a Nebraska Republican congressman from Omaha. I watched the unfolding of the Nixon impeachment, the process, because it is a process. It's all of the things that are a part of that, the press, politics, substance, reality, and never thought that we would probably, or I would in my lifetime, see that revisited again. But I mainly didn't think we would see it again because I would have thought that politicians, leaders, would have learned a very poignant lesson from what happened to Mr. Nixon. Um, obviously, the Clinton issue was different. The Trump issue, somewhat different, but not too different because it's abuse of power uh, and other issues that came up during Watergate. But I just never thought we'd see it again because I thought our leaders would be smarter than that and wiser than that and uh, more accountable and more responsible. From almost the moment he was sworn in in 1993, Republicans went fishing for something that would discredit Clinton. Their efforts went up to ramming speed in 1994 when the Republicans, led by Newt Gingrich, took over Congress. They gave special prosecutor Ken Starr wide leeway to investigate everything Clinton, and eventually Starr and his team hooked Monica Lewinsky. The House of Representatives ultimately voted for two articles of impeachment, perjury and obstruction of justice, both related to his relationships with women, Monica Lewinsky and Paula Jones. So in February 1999, Chief Justice William Rehnquist opened proceedings. The Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. The chaplain will offer a prayer. Gracious God, whose love for this nation has been displayed so magnificently through our history, we praise you that your presence fills this historic chamber and enters into the minds of the senators gathered here. Each of them is here by your divine appointment. 
Well, I give a lot of credit to the two leaders at the time. Trent Lott was the majority leader, uh, Tom Daschle, minority leader. And they brought the Senate together in the old Senate chambers. And um, we talked about the process. We talked about the procedures. The, every senator knew this was very serious. Then the process begins, and um, the House Senior Majority Judiciary Committee members, they are the prosecutors. The president has his lawyers on the floor of the Senate. But I believe their vision to be too dark, a vision too little attuned to the needs of the people, too little sensitive to the needs of our democracy. I believe it to be a vision more focused on retribution, more designed to achieve partisan ends, more uncaring about the future we face together. Our vision, I think, is quite different, but it is not naive. We know the pain the president has caused our society and his family and his friends, but we know, too, how much the president has done for this country. Now, you've heard many speeches over the past few weeks about high crimes and misdemeanors. As I look back on the arguments and the counterarguments, it seems to me that really very little can be gained by repeating them. For when all is said and done, what they mean is this. The framers chose stability. They made impeachment and removal constitutional recourses of last resort. The whole procedure took a little under a month. Then it was decision time. The question is on the second article of impeachment. Senators, how say you? Is the respondent, William Jefferson Clinton, guilty or not guilty? The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Abraham. Guilty. Mr. Abraham, guilty. Mr. Akaka. Mr. Akaka, not guilty. Mr. Allard. One by one, Mr. the senators cast guilty. their votes. Mr. Ashcroft. On this article of impeachment, 50 senators have pronounced William Jefferson Clinton, President of the United States, guilty as charged. 50 senators have pronounced him not guilty. It is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said William Jefferson Clinton be, and he hereby is, acquitted of the charges in the said articles. It was a difficult vote, and it was a difficult process. Uh, I learned a lot about myself, too, when you, when you have to sit there and judge somebody, because this was a, a, a stupid personal indiscretion. That's how it all started. But that's not why he was impeached. He was impeached for the cover-up and the lying and so on and so on. And I know for a president or anybody in public office, anybody, to admit to something like that in front of your wife, in front of your family, in front of the country— it's pretty bad. <laughs> but with responsibility that you have comes a certain amount of honesty and integrity, no matter how difficult it is for you. I think people have to count on that. I think they have to rely on that. And I've always thought of character is the foundation of everything. And it certainly it is, it is for leaders. We all make mistakes. We all slip. But then it's how you handle it, too. And the fact is, if you're president of the United States, you are held to a higher order. Uh, you are held to a higher standard, as, as you should be. Or uh, democracy will erode and evaporate and deteriorate. In retrospect, given the origin of the impeachment process against Clinton, does Hagel think this was Republican payback for Richard Nixon? 
there were many more issues involved. I, I mean, I worked with Gingrich, and I worked with that crowd. I came in in 96, two years after the Republican Revolution. It was power. It was really changing how America thought. Roger Ailes was involved in this, Fox News. There were so many dimensions that were playing out, and it was really, uh, once again, the beginning of the lack of trust and confidence in institutions. That's what happened in 1968 because of Vietnam. Vietnam went all the way through the early 70s when, when Nixon abused his power, took advantage of his position. Uh, the lack of trust and confidence in government and our leaders once again hit rec- uh, rock bottom. Former Nixon White House counselor John Dean disagrees. It was payback. I can't tell you how many members, Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee said to me when talking in the green room that this was payback for Nixon. And so there was no question that that was one of the thinking of a number of Republicans. Clinton advisor Sidney Blumenthal's experience seems to back up Dean's viewpoint. I was subpoenaed because I was in touch with members of the press, and I was speaking with them uh, about Ken Starr's uh, abuses, and they decided to subpoena me as a, a way to intimidate members of the White House staff, to smear me, and to try and get me to cease and desist from speaking to members of the press with an alternative narrative based, in fact, contrary to what they wished, and to control uh, the press coverage themselves. It was an agonizing and humiliating process, especially when Blumenthal's testimony, agreeing Clinton was a liar, was replayed during the Senate trial by the House's chief prosecutor, Lindsey Graham. How did that story make it to the grand jury, and how did it make it into the press? We know how it made it to the grand jury, because Mr. Blumenthal told it, and the president told him, and they claimed executive privilege, and the president never straightened it out. Your president redefined this relationship, and your president let that lie be passed to a grand jury. Your president obstructed justice in a mean way. Next tape. Page 49? Yes, sir. Thank you. It's where you start talking about the story that the president told you. Knowing what you know now, do you believe the president lied to you about his relationship with Ms. Lewinsky? I do. For Blumenthal, Bill Clinton's impeachment was an expensive ordeal. You have to have your own personal attorney. At the end of my service in government, and this is now about 20 years ago, my legal bills were in excess of $300,000. I had done absolutely nothing wrong. Is the past prologue to the future? In 1792, five years after the U.S. Constitution was written, Alexander Hamilton noted a certain kind of man had entered public life and was already threatening the democratic experiment in America. When a man, unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, 
when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, it may justly be suspected that his object is to throw things into confusion, that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. Those words resonate today as the impeachment process begins in the case of Donald Trump. Other words about the past resonate as well. Brenda Wineapple's description of Andrew Johnson. Johnson was adamant, he was belligerent, he was bullying, and he was pig-headed. He didn't even listen to his own advisors. But in other ways, the past is no guide at all. Each presidential impeachment has been unique. And although this is the third one in less than 50 years, all the people interviewed for this archive on four agree the times have certainly changed. Partisanship, in the worst sense, has taken hold in Washington. Republican Chuck Hagel served as Secretary of Defense in Democrat Barack Obama's cabinet. Republican William Cohen served in the same position in Bill Clinton's administration. Those days are gone now, says Hagel. 2019 is not 1998. Unfortunately, the polarization and the deep, deep divide in our country is such that it is hard to get consensus on anything. I mean, they can't pass a budget. We haven't passed a budget for years. They can't, the Senate hasn't passed one appropriations bill, and it's almost the end of the year. Um, I mean, things that you're just supposed to do on a regular basis, they can't do. So the expectations would be, I suspect, pretty low that the Democrats and Republicans could get together and work out a workable system. I mean, they'll work something out, but uh, I don't think that's, uh, it's hopeful. Legal scholar Frank Bowman points out an irony. In our current environment, it's easier to think about impeaching a president, but it's much harder to do anything about it. It's much harder to successfully remove a president. The reason that Nixon's removal succeeded was because, not only because what he did was plainly the essence of the kind of thing that the framers would have wanted to be impeachable, and he was a high crime and misdemeanor, as well as being a variety of felonies, but it was possible because the parties of the time were capable of looking beyond narrow ideological interests and were capable of considering facts, were capable of uh, making judgments that went beyond partisan interests. That impeachment is called for is clear to John Dean. You know, it's a train wreck. It's, it's the proverbial train wreck. They just can't look aside and ignore this stuff. What's going on now is about as serious abuse of presidential power that's ever occurred since the presidency has been created. This is way beyond Nixon's abuses of power. Nancy Pelosi is now Speaker of the House of Representatives. She put off starting impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump for as long as she could, to the chagrin of many Democrats in the House. But then, in September 2019, she reached a conclusion. I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations 
under that umbrella of impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. And she also referenced 1787, when the founders accepted the need for an impeachment provision in the Constitution. On the final day of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, when our Constitution was adopted, Americans gathered on the steps of Independence Hall to wait the news of the government our founders had crafted. They asked Benjamin Franklin, what do we have, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin replied, a republic if you can keep it. Our responsibility is to keep it. And at this moment, impeachment is the tool being used to guard the republic.